Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together and to worship you. We ask you to guide us and lead us as we look at what you want us to see from all of these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 10, we're going to be on verse 14. We've been looking at the visit of the Queen of Sheba and her testimony of Solomon that he was extremely wise and knowledgeable and that everything she'd heard about him didn't even begin to to meet his, meet what she had heard and she'd heard things that didn't that she didn't believe. Uh, talked about the navy bringing bringing gold and silver in and, and trees in. And so we continue this idea of how wealthy Solomon is. Now this description of Solomon's wealth has, had led many people for, for generations to say that Solomon was just a myth. You know, because it was, you know, they're making him so wealthy that you know, they kind of just said, well, he's legend. And over the years they've been finding out you know, through archeological digs and stuff that Solomon you know, may not have been, you know, they haven't been able to prove he was this wealthy, but the wealth that they proved him having makes this not too hard to uh, believe. There are people who says that the, the amount of gold Solomon had was more gold than his entire the, in, in the entire world. And I doubt that. I've never looked it up. I don't know how much gold there is in the entire world. And that's the other side of things, because that's the other people think people, the only way you can say that you know that nothing is someplace is if you're everywhere all at the same moment. Uh, because if I tell you that nowhere does such and such exist, and you're gonna, your question should be, well, how do you know that it exists nowhere? Well, I have been everywhere. Well, how do you know they didn't move it as soon as you, you know, if you remember somebody playing hide and seek, you looked here and as soon as you walked away, they went in and hid, you know, could hide where you had just looked, you know, and you're going, they're nowhere. Yeah, well, they weren't there when you looked, but they're there now. So the only way you can know that something does not exist completely 100% is to be everywhere at the same time. So God is the only one that can know that something exists or does not exist because he's the one that's everywhere. Uh, and so we have this problem in here, and I just bring this up because every once in a while you'll hear somebody you know, downplay, well, Solomon couldn't have been real, he couldn't have had this much money, and, and they'll give you all kinds of excuses, but that's what they are, excuses. They don't know it, they just suppose it. Um, so verse 14, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that he had the merchants and the tariff of the spice merchants, and of the kings of Arabia, and of the governors of the country. All right, so into his country was coming 666 talents of gold a year, approximately $17.5 million worth of gold. Just a little bit of gold coming in. Uh, but you know, this isn't, if you think about it, and from our day and age, these kind of numbers aren't, you know, aren't as significant as they used to be. Now we talk about billions and trillions all, you know, in, our, in our economy and everything with no problem. Now granted, this is 4,000 years ago, you know, 3,000 years ago, uh, so it's a lot, it is a lot of money, but we're talking about trillions of dollars. You know, we build things and it costs a fortune. In Solomon's day, inflation had hit so bad because of all the buildings he had and his taxes and all that other stuff that things weren't really worth a whole lot. And there's so much of it. And, but he had lots of gold, and he said, and besides all this gold, he said he had the tariffs coming from the merchants and the spice merchants, taxes. <laughs> he had other taxes, which took part of their incomes. And 
This is one of the things, you know, taxes are not new. They've had taxes as far back as, you know, as, as recorded. The first tax recorded in the scriptures really was when Joseph taxed the, the bountiful years at, 50, at 20%. They took in 20%, and then they were really nice. They sold everybody their stuff back when it was needed. So he took every, then he took everything they owned to, to, to get them through the famine. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty interesting politician that he was. Uh, but taxes are something, and we'll find out later when, when Solomon dies, the people ask, can you please reduce our taxes? They're too high, and Solomon's son's going to say, you thought my father's taxes were, were hard. You just wait till I get going. Uh, you know, we'll read more about that in a couple chapters. But you know, So we know the taxes were high. How, and why were they high? Well, he built a temple. He built two palaces. He's going to build a whole bunch of uh, parks and and um, uh, public buildings and all these things. He's going to build several temples for his foreign wives. All of that comes out of the tax money. And so he was taxing. Just as in America or any other country, when they do a lot of building, they ask us taxpayers to pay for it out of our money. So, and they'll say, it's all for you. And, and basically the same thing that was going to be said here. It's all for you. I'm just building this stuff for you guys. Uh, but we're going to see this taxes, and he says, the taxes come from the merchants, the spice merchants, the kings of Arabia, and the governors of the country. So all over the place, he's taxing. Now, the problem with taxes back in those days, I mean, we don't like taxes in our days, but there's a lot of rules making sure they don't take too much tax out of our, out of our, out of our ta income. In those days, and it happened all these places, you hired a tax collector, and the tax collector was told to bring in so much money from his area. And it didn't matter how much he took in. So if he's supposed to collect 20%, he could collect 30 or 40%, all with the power and authorization of the king, keep part of it, and send what the king asked for. And this was really big in the Roman days. This is why the, the Jews hated the Roman tax collectors, who were always Jews, who were willing to sell out their people. And, but that was the process. They got rich. How did they get rich? They took more taxes than they were supposed to tax, and created penalties and everything else the government does. So we see here tons of taxes, tons of things being in, shipped into him, and lots and lots of money. Solomon had so much money, he did not know what to do with it all. Now, that's a hard thing to picture, but he did. And we, we saw he, his big feasts every day. We talked about this several chapters. He had all the princes and the dukes and everybody around him providing for those dinners every month. They had to send everything for a month you know, to, to pay for his dinner, so he didn't, he didn't pay for his dinners. He had the people paying for all of his, all of his construction projects, and he's got you know, tens, of, you know, tens and tens of millions of, of dollars worth of gold coming in every year. Uh, and um, we're going to see what he does with some of this gold. Uh, verse 16. And King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into one target. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three pounds of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. He decided he had so much gold, he was going to decorate with it. Gold does not make good weaponry. But it does make beautiful 
uh, decorations on things. I mean, when you see somebody in their dress uniforms, even today, gold, you know, it's not real gold, but gold braids and everything are all over it and gold insignias and stripes and, you know, and it looks impressive even though when it's not real gold. In Solomon's case, it's real gold. Um, and he says he made uh, targets or shields, 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each one. That's about 650 pounds of gold <laughs> in each shield. These are decorative shields. These are not shields you go out to battle with. All right, oh, excuse me, $650 worth of gold. Um, 12, 12 pounds of gold, still. You don't take a shield that weighs 12 pounds <laughs> into battle, uh, unless you're Goliath. <laughs> but you know, you picture this. He built these huge shields as decorations. And he put them in the house in the forest of Lebanon. So they just sit there, and they're taken out. And we're going to find out these were taken out for special events. When they really wanted them to, to show off the wealth, they would take these out and parade with them. And so he builds 200 of these great big shields. And then he says he made 300 shekel of shields of beaten gold with three pounds of gold. Now, three pounds of gold is a lot of, lot of dollars worth of gold. Three pounds, you can picture that being a shield, but metal, uh, gold does not last up to being hit very hard much. So again, these are not battle shields. These are decorative. Uh, these are the, the armies marching out in victory. Let's show off and let the gold shine off everything. But we get the picture of Solomon doesn't know what to do with his gold, so he uses it for decoration. Just let's build some shields out of it. We're not going to use it for battle, but we're going we're to build some shields. Uh, it didn't say it, but it wouldn't surprise me if he built a gold chariot. You know, it's, you know, I don't, I've got so much gold, I don't know what to do with this, build a gold chair. Yeah, it doesn't say that he did that, don't get me wrong, but I, I could picture him doing and saying something of that nature. I mean, he's building decorative shields and saying, you know, using up $600 worth of, worth of gold just to make these decorative ones, and then whatever, I didn't look up what six pounds, uh, what three pounds of gold would be, but it's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, especially at our day's rates, it would be a huge amount of money several thousand dollars worth of gold in, in, the, in that amount. And he, this is what he did. He was so wealthy that he just was wasting it, being extravagant. Kind of would be nice if he'd have said, okay, let's preach God's message to the, to the Gentiles, but it wasn't taught by then, wasn't taught at that point in time. Uh, but he had all this wealth and, and building things that have really no need to be built. And we think about this, if you've ever seen some of these lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, and, and see the stuff they spend their money on. It's like, why does anybody need what you just spent all that money on? Well, because nobody else has it and it just looks good and I got the money to do it. This is what Solomon's doing. He's got money, he's using it for, you know, whatever he wants. And then he does a lot of good for the people. I mean, he builds the parks, he builds the He's built a temple. He's built beautiful palaces. And he, he has made Jerusalem a beautiful place. He has made other towns beautiful. He's built stables for his, his horses and his chariots. He's, he's built mighty fortresses for his armies to, to have to, to go to. I mean, he's done a lot of good for the people. And he still has so much money that he 
is just living in total opulence. And we see that from everything that's going on in his life. And you know, one of the things that this does for people, and we know this happens, is when, the, when you're extremely wealthy, you forget the needs of people and what they really need. He's building all kinds of buildings for them, and he's taxing them to death. He's got all this money coming in and taxing them you know, to, to beyond their limits. And yet if they're poor, he should have been helping out the poor to survive. And yet this happens all the time. And a lot of, tech, you know, a lot of people who are rich you know, look and say, well, I pay a lot of my taxes, and, and I'm helping the poor. Kind of like the line from Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, you know, aren't there any poor houses? Aren't there any places I, I pay to keep those? Let them, let them use those. And a lot of wealthy people think that way. And on one side, it is true. Their taxes have gone to help. But you know, to tie up all your money and not help anybody is not, help, is, is not good either. You live in luxury. And as Jesus said, the, the poor will always be with us. Because even if we took all of our money and distributed it amongst everybody, there would be people who would lose that money and abuse that money and be poor again. And so the poor will always be there, sometimes for their own decisions, sometimes beyond, beyond what they're capable of. You know, they had health issues or whatever. And the poor will always be there, no matter what we do to fix it. Because there are people who make bad decisions and have bad things happen to them. So the poor will always be there. And we see it. You know, when we see it in people who win the lottery or get, get a big, big uh, contract for doing something, almost every one of them end up broke in a very, very short time because they don't know how to use the money and they blow through it. And they don't know what to do with it. And then they get friends who decide to help them spend it. And they don't know how to say no. They don't know how to invest it. And the next thing you know, they are out of money. And just like the prodigal son, have no friends after they're out of money. You have plenty of friends when you had money. And as soon as you're out of money, you have no friends because none of them were really friends. They just wanted to help you spend your money. And this is the problem. The poor will always be there because they don't know how to handle it. The rich have learned how to handle their money. Most of the rich are rich mostly because they are very frugal. Most rich people, until they get to a certain, certain level, are very frugal and don't spend any money while they're getting there. And it's said that if you watch your pennies, your dollars will grow. And the problem is that most people don't watch their pennies. They care about the dollars. And so we see here, he's got lots of money and he's living crazy things. Verse 18, moreover the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round behind, and there were stays on either side of it, on the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the stays, and twelve lions stood there on each, uh, on the one step and on the other, upon the other six steps. And there was not like, uh, not the like of it made in any kingdom. And all of Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted for in the days of Solomon. For the king had, a sea, had at the sea a navy of, of Tarshish with navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold, silver, ivy, apes, and peacocks. So the king exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and wisdom. So we, again, we see the, the wealth of Solomon being exalted. 
And it says the first thing he did, he made a great throne. He made it out of ivory. And then he covered the ivory with, uh, with gold. <laughs> now, so he, he takes a very valuable commodity and makes a great throne. And this is one of these thrones that is historical. And it says there was none like it in any, any kingdom. In his day, the kings barely set up above the, above the people on a bench. He builds basically what is considered the first throne. He goes up six stairs to get above everybody. Then he builds a great big, not bench, literally a throne with sides and a back. He has built a chair. All up in that period of time, they had basically just built you know, uh, little benches raised up just a little bit because Solomon is really the first one who looks at himself as being greater than the people as king. David considered himself one of the people. Saul got bad toward the end. But even when you look, go back to people like Pharaoh, you know, he was king. He considered himself God, but he was willing to give all that power up to Joseph and say, you're number two, you know, everybody goes to you. That was the type of people that were kings up until about this time that were just, were, yeah, we're important people, but we are people. And from this point on, people, the king has become this person who has you know, extra power and is more important. And this was the problem even in the days of English and European rule. The kings had gotten to a place where they were more important than everybody else. And they, they had to be honored and they had to be lived. We see it when Haman comes along and he thinks that he's supposed to be bowed down to because Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, Xerxes had made him number. Xerxes had made him the number two power, and he he deserved to be bowed down to the way the king did. Uh, and we see this over and over: the power of the king and the power of the of leaders. And this has become the problem in humanity: is that as you gather more power, you want more power. And so the, the adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, is what happens. You get more and more power, and you want more and more power. And this is the first big start of that, I'm more important. Now, did he have that full attitude? I don't know. But he is setting himself up, saying, I'm, I'm higher than everybody else. I am important. And this is going to go all through our generations, even through today. Even through today, we, even in our democratic American republic, we have people who get into power and they take advantage of everybody and they gather more and more power every, all the time. You know, and it's a problem. It's human nature. It's human nature. And we see it even, even amongst families and neighborhoods. Whoever's the most powerful one in that neighborhood, either politically or just mean or whatever, whatever way they get power, takes more and more power as time goes on. It's just the way it is until somebody comes up and challenges their power and, sees, and can see if they can beat them and take that, take that position. It's human nature. Without God being our sovereign and being in charge, we try to fill that vacuum. And just as we said about everything else, if we're trying to fill the vacuum that God is supposed to be in, it can't be done. God is the ultimate one who can be the God in charge of everything without it going to his head. And this is the important thing. This is where your best leaders come from, people who can be in charge 
without having to depend on their, their title, their power. And this is, and we know, we, we've all met hopefully people that are good leaders. They're good leaders, they're not, and one of the things I had to train people when I would promote them as a manager, it seems like every time I promoted them, the power went to their head for the first week or two. And it's like I'd have to pull them aside and say, look, you were promoted because you are a leader. Quit, quit uh, letting this power go to your head. You know, and having to talk to them uh, you know, besides, but yet it's human nature. I've got a title. I've got power. Let me exercise this power. Jesus came to show us what power that God has. He served people. The God who should have been served, who should have been honored and have everything he wanted, was, came to serve. And he set the example of what true leadership is on earth. We serve one another. And that's where true leaders come from. And we are taught all through that. Paul says, I've come to serve. I pour, I'm poured out for you. And he goes, I could demand things. And, and, and to the Thessalonians, he says, I could have demanded you guys take care of me because of my position, but because it would have been a burden to you, I worked. And, I, and he, said, he, he even said, I stole from other churches. They supported me while I worked for you. And I don't like the word stole, but the idea was, he was telling them, they were giving me money that should have stayed in their church to support you. Do we look at things that way as when we're trying to be leaders? I've met so many people, even in church, they want a title in the church so, so they can feel important. Well, I just have to have, you know, put your title in there. You know, there's all kinds of titles in the church, and people want titles. Uh, title of teacher, music leader, you know, deacon, elder, uh, usher, whatever it might be. And most of them, in many times, want it just so they can have a title. You know, and this is a sad thing, but it is human nature again. You know, why do you want to be whatever it is you want to be? Hopefully it's to serve God. Because our whole goal of being Christians is to serve God. When we come to, to worship time, our worship is for God. It's not what makes me happy to worship. It's not what makes somebody else happy to worship. It's, am I worshiping God? Is it making God happy? And that should be our very top priority. Whatever it takes to make him happy in our worship should be what we're doing. When we're praying, how easy is it for us to get away from just talking to God? You know, God just wants us to talk to him. And yet when we start listening to all the prayers and churches, almighty, wonderful, almighty God, you know, the creator of the universe, yeah. like, okay, uh, that's fine if you truly mean it, but are you using all those flowery words just because you're talking in front of everybody? Which confuses usually kids. Kids are trying to figure out how to pray and they go, I don't know how to use all those big words, I can't pray. You know, and read one book and it was uh, about this guy who, who was an uh, African prince who got saved and his prayers were so simple. God, I need this, thank you. God, I, I need your direction, thank you. Very simple, down to earth prayers. And there is nothing wrong with those kind of prayers. Number one, God already knows what we need and what we want. He just wants us to ask. You know, and we think about this. If our kids come up to you, oh, wonderful, gracious, wonderful mother, uh, you know, most beautiful mother of all mothers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we laugh about that, but yet too many people do that kind of stuff with God. You know, and yes, we don't want to be too 
familiar with them, but at the same time, it doesn't take strong, overflowing words to, to come to him because Solomon is raising himself up. He builds this, this big throne out of ivy and, then he, ivory and then covers it with gold. Not just any gold, the best gold. So he takes a very valuable thing and then covers it with gold, builds six steps to go up there and builds these statues of lions. Uh, there's 12, 12 of them, one on each end of the steps coming up. We don't know how big these lions are, but the pictures I've seen on them, are they're not little things. You know, Solomon didn't do anything little. I don't know if the pictures I'm seeing are real ones or not, but these are not small things because Solomon doesn't do anything small. He's got lots of money. He's showing off. And everybody's coming to him, and kings and queens are coming to him, so he's got to be, he's setting himself up above them. We look at what's going on with Solomon's life, and pride is starting to come in. Pride is starting to come in. He has lots and lots of wealth. He's smarter than everybody else. And the problem is he knows it. And, it's, and he's not appearing to be very humble through all of this. And this is something, you know, he's not completely there yet, but we're going to see the fall of him coming in, and it starts with all of this pride. I am better than everybody else. I'm sitting up higher than everybody else. And those, all these kings and queens that are coming to see me are going to look up to me. We need to be very careful that we don't get proud of anything that God calls us to do or gives us. That we just sit back and say, God, thank you. Help me use this to the best of my ability and, and, and teach or sing or, or whatever it is he's giving, serve and use it to the best of your ability for God. And not think that we're special because it's easy. It is easy for us to get wrapped up in serving God and working for God. We get saved by grace, we know we're saved by grace, and then after, after a while we forget so much about the grace and start saying, well God, you know, I come to church every week, I, I give my tithes, I read my Bible every day, I, you know, I do this, I do that and start living on works. And the sad thing is, the more we do that, the further and further we get from God, away from God, and then we start feeling less and less close to God, and we're wondering why we're, why we're not so close to God, because we're doing all these wonderful things for God. And God is saying, get back over here with me. <laughs> you know, forget, forget what you're doing as your, as your status. Because we do it. We all tend to do it over time. Well, God, I'm, I'm doing so much. You know, God, there's just nobody else doing as much as I'm doing. You know, and we go, well, we'll never say it. I, and I, you know, I'm bold in saying it. You know, we end up kind of basically saying to God, you know, God, you're so lucky to have me. You know, most of us would never dare say that to God. But aren't we thinking it quite often? You know, God, I'm the one, that, I'm the one giving all this money. I'm the one doing all this service and if it wasn't being done by me it wasn't going to it's not getting done and this you've got and usually we'll say the church is so lucky rather than god <laughs> but you know we've got to be careful about that and it's easy to get there it's very easy to get there get so wrapped up in the doing of service for god that we forget god and sometimes mothers will have this happen to them they're so busy taking care of their families cooking, cleaning, getting them all around that they forget about the family. And they start going, I'm just so busy. 
And, and then you start hearing, nobody appreciates me. And that's the, the flip side of when you start living to please somebody by works, including God, and you don't get the appreciation you think you deserve, you even start thinking, God doesn't appreciate me. Well, he doesn't. <laughs> you know, he's saying, come back to me. Quit doing all the work for me. And we want to be very careful because it's so easy to slip in this, and Solomon is starting down that path. Starting down that path of elevating himself and thinking he's special because of his wealth and his wisdom. And it says that uh, there were sides on these, there were six steps. Verse 21 says, it, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels in the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. All right? So this shows you his standing. He does not have any pewter cups. He does not have any silver cups. He does not have any clay cups. His plates are not any of those items. They're all gold. Why? Because gold is the only thing he thinks has any value at this point. And it tells us that in this next verse. There, none were of silver. It was nothing accounted for in the days of Solomon. Now in Chronicles, we're told that silver was as bountiful as dust. All right? And we know what we do with dust. We sweep it out the doors. So he said, silver, he, he had so much silver, he says, that's eh, worthless. Now we can't even picture that. I and mean, he's getting to gold where he thinks it's worthless. I mean, he's using gold quite the way God does in the, in the new heaven and new earth. You know, he's building things out of gold. God in the new heaven and new earth builds the streets out of gold. What we think is the most valuable substance, you know, one of the most valuable substances in our, in our land, God says, yeah, no, I just use it for streets. I use it for decoration, kind of like Solomon did. Which makes me wonder what is valuable in, in heaven. You know, what, what does God think is valuable in heaven? And I have a sneaky suspicion that it's us, the souls that have been redeemed, that he says are, these, are, these are the valuable thing. Everything else out there, no value. He builds, he builds the gates of, of Jerusalem out of, out of uh, large pearls. Now, pearls that we can't get, but again, the idea is pearls are valuable. I just make, I make them as part of my doors. <laughs> you know, and, he, and he talks about these things that are all of value, and he says, I'm just using them in my, in, my, in my buildings, in my decoration. Why? Because he owns everything. It, it is of no value to him. But I have this feeling that we are the great value in heaven. So valuable that he died for us, so that tells us we're valuable. Why we're valuable, I have no idea. Why I'm valuable, I have no idea why I'm valuable enough for God to die on the cross for. And yet he did. And even beyond that, he created us knowing that he was going to die on the cross. And, and for us. And even before that, he created the heavens and the earth knowing that he was going to die for us, us sinners who were going to sin. And still did it. What value does he place on us? You know, do we place that same value on, on souls? I'm going to say no. I don't care how much we value we put on souls. We don't put this value God does on them. Because he was willing to die for each individual. And we have hard times going and sharing the gospel with each individual. We need to be very careful. Do we value what God values? And this is important for us to understand. What 
do I value in my life? The longer we walk with God, the more we start to value what he values if we're growing with him. But I don't know if we ever get to the place where we value everything that he values the way he values it. And this is important. The word. He says, my word will exist for eternity. How much do we value the word? Now, I know that this group values the word very greatly. But you know what? One thing I'm learning even there. Everything I do for God and and every value that I have for God, I realize is nothing when I finally get there and realize he's got another level for it to be loved, another level to be desired. And you're going, God, wow, where's this end? It doesn't. It's infinite. It goes on and on and on and on because God just says, okay, you love it that much? Let me give you some more knowledge of it. Let me get you a little deeper love. You want to learn about me? Let me show you about me, God says. And Oh, you think you know my love? You think you know my grace? You think you know my mercy? Let me show you my mercy, my love, and my grace. And then he asks us to start showing it to others. And, you know, and then when we finally get to where we think we're, we're there, okay, God, I love like you. God says, oh, no, you're not even close yet. Let me, let me, let me teach you. I'm going to teach you some more of how to love. I'm going to teach you some more about how to forgive. All backwards from the way the world is. The world lifts ourselves up and says, I need, I need, I need. And God says, humble yourself. Jesus said that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that doesn't mean the little humble thing that goes on in churches where somebody goes, I've got to be the last one to go through the line so that I can be first in heaven. No, it is literally an attitude of, I'm so humble that I'm going to let others get the glory. And the hardest thing that happens is when you start, you've humbled yourself, you're serving people, and then people want to raise you back up. Now, they put you first. <laughs> and it's like, you have to walk a fine line there too because you just still have to maintain the attitude of the humility and yet take the honor that is there because that's what James says. If you go to a dinner, take the lowest seat so that if you're going to be the guest of honor, you're brought up, not reseated because you took the seat and uh, by the way no we've got somebody more important than you that's embarrassing especially by the time you're told you could have the lowest seat in the back of the room now because they just don't move you to the second third or fourth position it's like no you're in the wrong seat uh, you gotta move we need to keep that attitude with God God keep me humble and help me to lift up and exalt others and also be ready. When you're being exalted, accept it genuinely. One of the hardest things to learn is to accept gifts from others. When you're, because there are people who want to give things to you, and it's so hard sometimes, you'll go, wow, you know, I don't, I don't want it. I don't need it. One of the things I had to teach my wife was don't steal somebody else's blessing by rejecting a gift. Because we had a time when we were getting gifts because we were poor. We were poor. Not dead, dead poor, but, you know, most of the people in church, we were poor. You know, we were, we were surviving. We had food on the table, car, bills were being paid, but there were no, nothing extra, no, no benefits. And we'd get little gifts here and there. And one time we got a big gift. And Lynn didn't want to take it. I said, we need to accept this gift. If you don't want it, I'll find somebody to give it away to. And then we gave it away. Could we have used it? Yeah, we could have used it, but... It was a good-sized gift, and we didn't need it at the time. But, you know, 
Have you ever rejected somebody's gift because you felt too proud, you, know, you didn't want to get proud or you, you felt that it hurt, hurt your humility? You, you would steal their blessing of giving away from them so that you didn't get tempted? It's a very interesting place to be. And this is why it's hard to live and sometimes this, this idea of I'm just going to stay humble and yet I'm being exalted. David was being exalted every time he turned around and yet he stayed humble for the most part. Uh, Solomon, not so much. <laughs> his, his, the sons afterwards, <laughs> definitely not so much. Uh, but it is an interesting place to be. Staying humble even when people are recognizing you and recognizing the gifts that God is using on you. Uh, you think of somebody like a George Mueller. You know, he thought of himself as a worthless bum because of his bat- background, and then God uses him, and everybody's coming to him to learn how to pray and how to ask for God to meet their needs. And all through his books, he goes, he never felt that great. All he had learned was to ask God and depend on God. And everybody's coming to him like he's somebody great. And he was a great man. And the things he accomplished with God's, God's teaching was great. But you know, for all of us, I hope it stays this way, that when we're being used by God, we never feel like it's up. It's up because number one, we know it's God. And then number two, we know who we really are. And we know what our heart is in all of this. And we want to be careful, and I understand. When people are saying how good you are, one of the things for Billy Graham that had to have been hard for him, great, the great evangelists, millions of people getting saved, the, the ear of all these kings and, and presidents. And from what everybody said, he was still one of the most humble men that they ever met. How hard would that have been? Everybody saying how great and wonderful you are, and you're thinking, you know, whatever kept him humble, whatever it was that kept him humble. Mostly probably understanding how bad he was before he turned himself over to God. Because he did not start out at a real, real young age. He was a rebel. You know, and many of us are rebels at some point, and we recognize that God, <laughs> boy, if these people just knew who I was inside and what I thought and what I, what I have done, you know, they, they wouldn't think I'm that great. And God says, that, that's good. They, they, know you, they know you by grace. And we need to keep that idea going on. Uh, verse 22 says, The king had said to see a, a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. Once every three years came in the navy of Tarshish bringing gold, silver, ivy, apes, peacocks. So he sends his ships on three-year tours. <laughs> they come back with gold and silver, more silver, ivy, uh, apes, and peacocks. Now, why peacocks? I don't know, but peacocks. <laughs> And I'm sure this was not an exhaustive list. If these guys were going to the Orient, I'm sure there were things in the Orient that they did not have where they, where, where, for Solomon. They probably brought back silk and, and precious things that come from the Orient, spices and stuff that come from there. In other words, he was saying, lots of stuff came. Lots of stuff in it, you know, zoos, exotic animals, uh, all kinds of things were coming back to him. And it was one of those things when his navy hit, hit the shore, they saw something interesting, they took it to bring back to Solomon. And so, can you imagine the zoo that Solomon must have had? Yeah. Gold plated. <laughs> gold plated zoo. <laughs> and the animal's almost dead, we'll gold plate it. Yeah. <laughs> I would hope not, but, <laughs> but everything else, the bars and everything else might have been gold plated. And it says in verse 23 So Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. He is wealthy and he is wise. 
What a good combination. Too bad he didn't use it correctly you know, in his later days. But he started out, his prayer to God was, God, give me wisdom. And God gave him everything else that he didn't ask for. Beyond wisdom, he had wealth, he had power, he had prestige, he had peace. Verse 24, And all the earth sought for Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart, and they brought every man his present vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and garments and armor, and spices and horses and mules, a weight year by year. So we see here, everybody's coming to Solomon. You want answers? You go to Solomon. And you know, we want answers, we go to Google. <laughs> you know, a lot cheaper, too. Uh, but here in their day, you wanted answers? You went to Solomon. And Solomon did not give the answers cheap. He was a king. Number one, you never came into the presence of a king without a gift. And if you want an answer to a question, you probably, the bigger the, you thought your question was, the bigger your gift probably was. And it says they brought in every man his present vessels. These are containers. You would probably say chests. All right? Vessels are your containers, boxes, chests, whatever it might be, of gold and silver, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules. <laughs> you know, they were buying their answers from Solomon, giving him honor. Uh, and even today, you don't go empty-handed into the presence of royalty or even into governmental officials. You need to at least give them honor. But you know, usually it takes something you're supposed to give a gift, especially if you go see a king. If you ever get called to, get to go see a king, you're expected to bring a gift. Now, not that I expect to ever go see the king. Now, the flip side of it is a king usually gives you back a gift bigger than what you give them. All right, uh, because that's part of the that's part of the protocol. You gave me, I give you, and we saw that when Hiram gave him gifts. When he gave Hiram gifts, Hiram gave back things. When Bathsheba, or Bathsheba, when the Queen of Sheba gave him a gift, he gave her gifts back. It was not, that was part of protocol. You, they would give back. And it didn't have to be equal, but it usually was, because you weren't going to be outdone by the person giving you, especially if you're Solomon and you're the wealthiest of all people. You're not going to be outdone by anybody's gifts. So he, was going, he would give a big gift back in return. Now, the wisdom and answer alone would have been valuable enough for most of these people. I would say the answer to that is no. It's one of my problem areas when pastors use their teaching to do fundraising uh, and charge people to come hear them, hear them speak. It's like, Okay, is this you speaking or God speaking? And if it's God speaking, what are you charging people for? And I have a problem with it, and I've always had a problem with it. Uh, it's something that bothers me. Now, giving an honorarium, giving a free gift, giving, you know, even planning on giving a good gift to somebody, I think is valuable. I mean, I do believe they're worth their time. But to ask for it to, to be a fundraiser, I have problems with. Uh, to pay somebody to come, I prefer free will gifts because then it's whatever people feel are worth it. But I can understand, you know, especially if somebody's traveling, they've got travel expenses that probably should be covered. Their housing experience, you know, their, their hotel, you know, cost, if any, should be covered. And some, 
something to give them, you know, for taking their time out to come to you. It's valuable. I just don't, I agree with you on this one. God gave him the wisdom. Should he be charging for giving out the answers? I don't, don't know. And I don't know specifically, this place is a very interesting place. Are they buying the answers or are they giving the present to him for his royal position? All right. They're not coming empty-handed, and there could be two reasons for that. They're honoring him, or they're trying to buy a good answer. And I don't know the answer to that, because <laughs> it doesn't really tell us. All it says is they bring presents. Everybody who comes to him brings presents, and that's protocol. It, you're coming to see a royal, royal king, you bring presents. When Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to buy food for them, what did he tell them? Take the, we don't have much in this land, but take the best of what we have. Take them the honey, take them the... The, the dates we have and, and present it to him as a gift. So it's been a long term. This isn't something new in Solomon's day and it's not new in our day. It's expected. You're going to see somebody important. You bring a gift. And you think about it, even if you go to a party, you know, you're usually expected to bring something, even if it's a little food to add to the party or, or the bottle of wine or whatever it might be. There's, there's kind of an expectation that you're going to help the host out. And the, and the higher your position is, the better you want your gift to be so that it stands out amongst everybody else's. And this is what's happening with Solomon. You know, people are trying to outdo each other in giving to him because, you know, King Hiram's not gonna wanna feel like he's, he's being shortchanged. You know, he thinks he's got an important position. He's not gonna let anybody give a bigger gift. The Queen of Sheba's not gonna let people give a bigger gift. So you have this prob pro probability. I don't know that they're buying the answer. I think they're just saying, I'm coming before the king, I can't come empty-handed. Whatever it might be, a goat or a chicken or something, you gotta bring <laughs> something to the king to honor the king because you're standing in front of him. And that's all through, all through history and all through the governments out there. Um, let's see, verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the kings at Jerusalem, with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones and cedars to be as the sycamore that are in the vale for abundance. So here we have in Deuteronomy 17:16, God told the people, do not multiply horses unto yourself. Why? Because he wanted dependence upon himself. The horse in that day was a very powerful weapon, and the chariots were equal to our tanks. All right, so if you had lots of chariots, and he has four, uh, 1,400 chariots, that's a lot of tanks. And basically, they would just ride into battle and overcome any enemy. And basically, they usually didn't even have to go into battle. You just rode the chariots up there, and everybody surrendered because you had all the chariots. All right, they didn't have bazookas and cannons and stuff to, to destroy the destroy these things, and these, these things would tear up the, the infantry because they had big spikes and swords on the sides, and they'd just ride through, cut up everybody, and then turn around and ride back through and cut everybody up and, and not worry about everything. And so God says, I don't want you to depend on your horses and your chariots. I want you to depend on me. And Solomon totally ignores that. He builds himself up an army with chariots and 12,000 horse. It's a lot of cavalry. You know, a lot of cavalry is 12,000 horsemen. 
And again, horses could ride right through most, most things. They could get defenses against it, but horses would just run right through things with not a problem. They were a valuable asset for war. And it's saying here that Solomon is starting to trust in himself. And the more he trusts in himself, the further he gets from God. And this is the problem that we so often have. We start trusting in ourselves. God, I've gotten rid of all my big sins, and, I, and I'm a pretty good person now. I don't need you as much because I've got my life put together. And God says, okay, let's see how well your life's put together. But you know, it is something we start to do every once in a while. We start walking around with God long enough, and we start thinking, ah, I got this. I don't need God. I understand the Bible when I read it. I don't need to pray and ask you to help me understand it. I go to church. I understand what's being said and being done. I, I, I'm the one that helps, you know, give, give, give uh, input in on the Bible studies. And, you know, and I've got all the answers. I don't really need you. And it, we drift. And it's easy to drift from God. And we've used the example, if you've ever been swimming out in the ocean with all the waves and you start body surfing or even surfing, and you're out there for an hour or two, and then you start realizing that you're a mile down the beach, and your towels and, 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 and uh, case are you know, way up the beach because you weren't paying attention, and you slowly started drifting away. That's how we get with God often. We start drifting away and drifting away, and before we know it, we're going, God, where are you? <laughs> you know, uh, God, I'm going to play a position where I need you, and God's saying, I'm over here where I've always been. <laughs> I'm still on the towel on the beach with the, with the sandwiches and the drinks. Uh, why don't you get back over here? Yeah. And it's easy to drift away. And we laugh, we laugh about the idea sometimes, but you know, it really is sad because it is easy to get there. And all we can do, all, you know, think about it. We've done it. We've all done it. No matter how hot or cold we think we are with God, we have all done it at some point, and even usually within the last year. Maybe not ended up miles from him, but had couple of days where we didn't go read the Bible, didn't pray so much, and then wonder where God went as we're drifting down the, down the beach away from him. Easy to do. And we don't do it on purpose. Usually we don't sin on purpose. Now, now there are people who sin on purpose, but even those aren't necessarily thinking of doing sin. Usually we just get far from God and we're no longer conscious of what we're doing and all of a sudden, we get caught up. And we, we make the decisions. It's not saying that we didn't make the decision, but we started with a small decision and led to another decision, which led to another decision, which led to another decision. You know, most people who go out and commit adultery don't just wake up one morning and say, well, I'm going to go find somebody to sleep with tonight. Okay? They just start being attracted to this person. That person's nice to them. They said some nice things to me. My spouse hasn't said a nice thing to me in five years. Now, and this person's saying nice things to me. They like me. And then it gets a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, and the next thing you know, it's gone way too far. And it all started out with the lie that your spouse had not said anything nice to you. you know, and maybe it's been a while since they said anything nice to you, but it still didn't matter. You know, we, need to, we need to keep faithful. Why does somebody steal? They stop depending on themselves, and they get further and further into bigger problems, and they go, well, I just need this. I need it more than they need it. And they steal it. You know, and this is happens. Sin starts small. 
How does somebody become an alcoholic? Most people do not become an alcoholic the first time they take their drink. Now there are people that that's happened to, but most of them just nice social night, they had a night, you know, fun night. You know, they felt mellow after it and their drugs, whatever it might be. And then time after time after time, they start needing more of whatever it is that they had to get that same mellowed out feeling. And the next thing you know, the hook has been set and the need is now demanding. And this can happen with any sin. Any sin that's out there, once that hook is set, it's in control, it demands. You need, you, you think you're, you're, you're pride, you know, all of a sudden you've got to get more and more recognition for who you are. I, I gotta get more people, there's not enough people telling me how good I am, or recognizing how good I am. It happens, sin has this addictive quality that once it sets its hook in you, demands more. Whatever that sin is, any sin, has the same problem. It demands more and more, which is why we have to stay on guard with God and stay hidden in him and let him answer the door to temptation, stay in the word, be convicted of our sin and repent and turn to God because the littlest sin will take us down the long road. Solomon's sins started small. Yeah, He's starting out with just a little bit of pride. I'm a little bit better than everybody else. We're going to see that it, you know, now he's probably, now at the end of this, he's taking the pride of, I can take care of myself. I've got an army that can defend us. We don't, you know, look at, it's my army keeping us, you know, at peace, not God. It was God's promise that he'd be at peace. He builds an army to, to tempt him into saying that it's him who's keeping that peace. Now, it probably did help. I mean, having a large army was going to help keep peace, but God had already promised that he was going to have peace. He didn't need the large army because God was the one that was going to deliver him and keep him. Then it says in verse 27 that silver was just like stones. Now, those of you who are looking at all your rocks earlier, we know that you like, you know, you like the idea of silver being like, <laughs> like stones, but this is literally mean, meaning that you know, the stuff that they've made their, their uh, sidewalks and paths out of, because that's what, you know, just throw silver down, walk on the silver, it's, it's nothing. You know, there's no value to it. And cedar was made like the sycamore trees, the fir trees. One of the more valuable woods, he says, hey, we, we're using it everywhere. It's so, it's so abundant that pine is, pine is worthless. We don't even want to think about pine. Uh, what value there is here, the wealth of Solomon is being ex expounded upon. Silver is worthless. Uh, cedar is worthless. Gold is being used to decorate everything. Solomon is probably on these ships hoping that somebody gives him something that draws his attention, which is why we see apes and peacocks and all these things. You know, they probably bought the most exotic animals they could find just to give him something to get excited about for a little bit of time. And this is the problem. When you start getting everything your heart desires, you get a little bit jaded. This is why a lot of wealthy kids are spoiled rotten brats because if their parents aren't taking care of them, they get everything they want and they're spoiled. They expect everything and they're just so used to it. And, we, and you can watch some movies sometimes. The guy who's got everything goes out and he's bored. You know, his friends are all excited. They get to go out with him and experience this stuff and he's just bored. I had a friend like that when I lived in Maine. We all loved to go to his house. His house had all the sodas that you wanted, 
all the candy that you would want it, just about every indoor game that you, you know, foosball and pool table and, and ping pong. I don't know how wealthy his parents were, but they gave him everything. We loved to go out, you know, there were cookies everywhere, candy everywhere, and usually there wasn't much left when we left. <laughs> but, you know, he looked at it all like, it's nothing. I, I have, I see it all the time. It's no big deal. We've got to be careful we don't get that way with God and his blessings. God, you know, oh yeah, 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 this is the blessing. Okay, God, thanks. Yeah. When we first get these blessings, we're like, oh, thank you, God. This is so wonderful. I love it. Thank you. But it is easy to get jaded to after a point where we get so used to his blessings and saying, okay, God, what's, you know, so what's next? What's next? And at that time, God may just said, well, let me show you what's, let me take away the blessings so you can get a re, re-liking of the, the blessing. It is easy to get jaded, easy to forget what we have. All right, last two verses. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price, and a chariot came and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 and so the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria did bring them out by their means. So Solomon is buying the horses, and the horses of Egypt at that time were some of the best horses. Okay? Nowadays it's Saudi Arabia with the Arabian horses, but in their day it was the Egyptian horses were the best of the best, and chariots. And he says he bought the chariots, and for the equivalent of about $328, and horses for about $82. In our in our in our money, and in those days, that'd been a pretty good pretty good fair uh, thing. So he bought horses and linen. Uh, was brought out of Egypt as gifts, and then it has this very curious statement at the end of twenty. And the king's merchants received the linen at a price. Solomon is kind of an interesting character. He's being given gifts and he sells the stuff. <laughs> he's given the linen, he's given the linen and he sells it to the merchants. You know, what a, what a character he is. And again, it's starting to show his pride. I'm important. I've got this stuff. I'm going to sell it. And the chariots came out of Egypt, and then he sold them to the kings of the Hittites and the Syrians, and they did this by their means. So he's buying it. Who knows what he raises the price to? Uh, he is not going to lose money in his deals. We see here Solomon is to a degree a businessman, uh, also kind of a con artist. He's getting things for, for, for free and then selling them for, you know, I guess that's part of being a businessman. He gets them for it and sells the stuff. Uh, but he's also making stuff, and he, is, and he is investing into the kingdom. This is the golden age of Israel. They are the world power. They possess all the land from the Euphrates, either in actual possession or by tributary and vassals. They own everything from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean River and down all the way up to Egypt. Everything that they are going to own in the Millennial Kingdom and and for eternity they own during Solomon's day. And Solomon takes pride in it. Even though he didn't do anything to get it, most of it was given to him by David. He lives in peace. He's getting all these gifts. He's wise. People are seeking out answers for him. 
And what could he have done? If we just think about what he could have done if he had stayed following God, how much of the world could have been evangelized during Solomon's day if he had just taken the attitude of, God, you've blessed me so much, let me use my wisdom to, to evangelize. But evangelism has never been part of the traditional Jewish mentality. Even though all through the Pentateuch, God says, this sacrifice, this mode of worship is for you and the strangers. In other words, us Gentiles. And yet they never brought Gentiles willingly into the mix. Now they would make them go through their training and get circumcised and make their offerings and, and all of this and become Jews. But they would not just say, God says you could sacrifice. God wants you to sacrifice. And there's every indication that God wanted everybody to come to the temple and the tabernacle to sacrifice, to honor him and to learn of him. And yet the Jews put up all kinds of walls to keep it from happening. Even to the point where in Jesus' day there's a great big sign saying, no Gentiles beyond this point on penalty of death. So if you were a Gentile in the temple, you'd be killed. So you could not worship God by Jesus' day. And then all the other cheating and stuff that went on in the temple. You know, this is why when he met the woman at Samaria and she goes, well, you Jews say you have to worship in Jerusalem. Our, our people say we have to worship on this hill. Where is it? And Jesus says there's coming a day when neither place will be the place to worship. You'll worship in spirit and in truth, which is where we're at. We can worship God anywhere. What a blessing we have. Can you imagine if we had to go to Jerusalem to worship, living in this country? Now, of course, there's no temple there, but you know, just imagine the Jewish people at three times a year had to go to Jerusalem to worship. No matter how far away you lived from Jerusalem, three times a year you were to go to Jerusalem to worship and offer your sacrifice. What would have happened if Solomon had taken his wisdom and his, and his finances and evangelized? You know, and this is something that's important for us. We need to reach out to the world and use God's gifts to touch the world. And we're looking at it, it's getting closer and closer, more and more of the world is being evangelized. And Jesus is going to come soon. How soon? We don't know. But he said when every tongue is heard and every, every nation is heard, how close are we there? We don't know. Because the funny thing is, is every time we think we do it, what they'll do is they'll subdivide different nations and say, well, there's certain languages within that nation that haven't been hit yet. They're trying to justify Jesus not coming back. Okay, well, you know, this, this American dialect, we've got the, the Southern dialect, we've got the Texas draw, we've got the, the Californian, uh, Southern Californian dialect, we've got the Middle, Midwest dialect. You know, you can see how silly it gets. You know, they're all speaking the same language. You know, yes, they're, yes, some of them speak a little funny, but we can still understand them unless they don't want us to understand them. But when will Jesus come? Any moment. He can come at any time now because the nations have heard. The world has heard. Has every single person in the world heard the message of God? I don't think so, but it's getting closer and closer. It's kind of interesting that there are satellite dishes in the middle of the jungles, in the middle of the deserts. Uh, you know, they, they've got satellite dishes. These guys are watching television shows and radio shows and, and computer shows, even in the middle of nowhere. 
And so Jesus can return any moment. Our job is to evangelize. It's been said that he's waiting for that last person that God knows is going to get saved. Who's that last person? I don't know. That should motivate us to get people saved. Maybe this is the last person. That person barely says prayer and we end up in heaven. But you know, we need to keep this moving out and trusting God and saying, God, I want to share you with others and see you lifted up. Because he looks at souls as being valuable. So much value that he died for us. And like I told you, I heard a message one time, I think the guy might be right. You know, part of our joy in heaven is going to get testimonies. Testimonies of what God did to get them there. I love testimony. I love hearing what God did to get people saved. And listening to those. And having people share those. It's fun. I enjoy enjoy it. Uh, We sing this song, I love to tell the story. And it says, those who know it most, love it most. And it really is true. The more I know about the gospel and the testimonies, the more I want to hear. I want to know more about God. More and more. Because there's something just special. It's wonderful to hear that God doesn't treat every single person the same. Now, Jesus did that. And I think Jesus did it on purpose. You know, we think about all the different ways he healed people's blindness. Some he just spoke to. Some he touched. One he spit into his eyes. One he spit under the ground and made a mud, mud, mud pack. One he said, go wash, go wash. You know, why did he do that? Mostly so we didn't have, here's, here's the way to heal, heal people. You come up and we'll spit in your eyes. <laughs> you know, and you'll be healed of your blindness, you know. Uh, or make, we're going to make mud pies, you know, and, and clear, clear your blindness. He, he did things different just to show his mercies are new every morning. God doesn't do the same thing twice. And this is what we need to keep an eye on. We get to the place where we like to put God in a box. God, this is how you took care of me last time, so I'm expecting it to be the same exact way. And God says, I've got something different for you this time. God doesn't get put into a box. Now, uh, if you try to put God into boxes, he specializes in jumping out of the box. Because he's not going to let human beings box him and, and tell him, this is what you've got to do. You've got to live this way. God, you've got to behave this way. And God says, uh-uh, I'm God. You're, you're the subject. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask you to help us to always remember who you are and help us draw closer to you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? 
Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.